Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 160 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Wesley Chu, author of the humorous sci fi action novel The Lives of Tao. His new novel, Time Salvager, about a time travel agency that scavenges resources from the past, is currently being adapted for film by Michael Bay. And now, here's our interview with Wesley Chu. All right, so we're here with Wesley Chu. Welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. Uh, Okay, so first of all, just tell us a bit about your background as a science fiction fan. Just how did you get into it? I actually got into it through fantasy. So when I was, uh, I think when I was in... um... As a little kid, my, my dad, who's an English professor, took me to like a bookstore and he, you know, told me, you know, you could buy, you know, or I will buy you whatever book you want. And at the time, he, you know, basically as an English professor, he wanted, he was like steering me towards like Shakespeare or like Beowulf or something like that. And instead, I ran towards all the books of the pretty pictures. Although, other option, not the pretty pictures, but like the pretty, you know, pictures of like manticores and like magic swords. So, my very first two books were A Spell for Chameleon by Piers Anthony and The Misenchanted Sword by Lawrence Walt Evans. Yeah, yeah. And also, I heard you say Robert Asprin you, you read when you were a kid? I read like the first, I want to say the first nine myth books. I read the first 18 Byzantine books. I read all the L. Frank Baum books, um, all the Oz books. The did some Tim Powers a little bit later on, and I really didn't get into like regularly reading sci-fi until probably you know a lot later after college when I started reading uh, John Scalzi, Old Man's War. I think it was my very first post two thousand science fiction novel. And so, were you were you writing any fiction of your own? Like, when did you start writing your own fiction? So I wrote my first short story in like second grade. Um, I remember this very clearly because it's kind of like a turning point in my life. And it was a, it was actually a science fiction short story about like the solar system and all the planets used to run into each other and like, you know, get pockmarked over their surfaces because they kept banging into each other. So they got in a bunch of fights. And then the, the son, who was the king, got pissed off at them for always like running to him, complaining about each other. So he enforced gravity upon them. And my English professor father read it and basically said, you know, this doesn't suck. Hmm. And that kind of started me off, like, the plan of seeds of, like, maybe I want to write stories for a living. And then when I was 16, you know, when, you know, back in the early 90s, career counseling was not a thing, or it wasn't a very good thing. So I didn't know what my options were, so I actually told my father, hey, Dad, I'm going to be an English major just like you, and I'm going to write books for a living. And then my my dad basically said, no, son, your life will suffer. (laughs) So I didn't. I became a computer science major, and I I say that I've been chasing that mistake ever since. But in reality, it's probably a really really smart decision to make. Yeah. So so were you writing anything at all during sort of college and the years after college? I didn't. So what happened was... I know I worked, you know, I was a computer science major. I worked in large financial institutions, banks, insurance companies, and stuff. But I was always looking for stuff to do, like that, like a calling. 
And I got away from writing for a while. So you know, I became a member of the Screen Actors Guild. I was acting. I was heavily into martial arts. You know, I was getting really good at it. And then I think around like 26, you know, 25, 26 or something like that, I realized that, you know, I was working a day job. I was training 18, 20 hours a week. I had no friends. And I was kind of lost in searching. So I kind of dug deep a little into like, you know, what, what used to make me happy. And then I remembered I just love to write. Or I, I, I remember I loved reading. So that's when I basically dropped everything. I dropped all my martial arts, you know, most of the acting I was doing. I, I went straight into writing. I wrote a terrible first novel. It was like a 180K monstrosity. You know, it didn't go anywhere. I, it was probably the most important book I ever wrote because I learned all my, you know, valuable lessons of what not to do for a book. <laughs> I got drunk for a week and then I started Lies of Tell. Well, so, so what were some of the lessons you learned from writing that monstrosity novel? Oh, man. I mean, it was 180,000 words. But it was like, it was an epic fantasy. It was like, like I think it was like two points of view. <laughs> it was two points of view at 180K. It was self-indulgent. I think I had fart jokes in there. It was just really badly written. Um, I think because a lot of my early, I, like I, I read real time, you know, I, I was one of those guys that waited in line for the Wheel of Time, and I read all the Dragonlance books. So I think in that novel, I had a lot of walking. Like my, <laughs> dudes, my dudes walked around a lot. If you, if you, yeah, they, they, they walked around a lot. They told fart jokes. They got drunk at taverns. It was just, it was basically like Dragonlance fan fiction without the cool dragons. <laughs> okay, so, and so you mentioned Lives of Tao, which went on to be your first published novel. How, what was sort of the genesis of that project? thing where I dream my plots. And and the thing about Lives of Tao is I, it, it kind of started one day when my alarm clock rang like really early in the morning and I, I had this idea planted that, you know, what if that alarm clock was like a personal trainer that was an alien in my head of talking to me trying to like make me get up. Hmm. And then from that point, it kind of morphed into um, Roland Tan, my main character in Lives of Tao. He's kind of like an older, like, you know, not older, but he's not young, a young man or a teenager. But he's in his early 30s, and he's kind of lost with, with his life. You know, he's had many opportunities to succeed in life, but he's never taken advantage of them. And he hates his job and has very low self-esteem and can't talk to girls. So he's got all these things that are, are pent up inside. And that's kind of where I was at with my career as well. So I, was, I didn't like my job. I wanted to do something else, but I didn't know how to do it. I didn't, I didn't have the confidence to, like, take a risk. So... I came up with the idea of like, you know, the lives of Tao having these, these ancient aliens who, who can communicate with you but can't control you. So even though they're wise and they can, you know, really guide you towards your, your goals, at the end of the day, the host or, 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 the, or, or Rowan or whoever it is has to actually do it himself. He has to want to make that change and has to, you know, work towards realizing what what his goals are so and that was kind of that kind of paralleled where i was at you know in my mid-20s right and so when you started that book did it feel like did you know that this was going to be your first published book or did you have any idea of that uh i mean yes and no because back then when you don't know better every book you're working on feels like could be your first breakout hit hmm. and you know so i was very confident about that and, and and the book definitely the first draft definitely wasn't ready i went through a very small round of submissions and it totally just got slammed and then i i quit 
writing for three years, and I played World of Warcraft because that's what you do. You <laughs> World of Warcraft came out, and that became like my life for the next three years. I was a raid leader and a guild officer and all that good stuff. So I did that, and then after you know three years of getting burned out on Warcraft, I got back to writing again, and then I you know dug up the lives of Tao. By that time, I I was a little bit more mature, a little bit you know, more knowledgeable about the industry. I brushed it up. I did a pretty thorough edit. And then Angry Robot, in two, uh, March 2011, had a one-month open submission. So I submitted to them. And I think in that one month, they had 955 submissions. Out of those 955, I think you know, they asked for 65 full manuscripts. Out of those 65 manuscripts, 25 made it to editorials. I'm sorry, acquisitions, and out of those 25, five books got picked up, got contracts, and that was one of those five. Wow. So you never had an agent uh, at all up to this point? Uh, I think in, in the editorial phase, when they had 25 um, books, uh, they asked for 25 books, I signed up my agent, Russ Galen. Okay, wow, wow, great. Um, and so then what? Uh, tell us a bit about writing the book. Like, What was your process for writing it uh, from... The point at which you uh, you picked it up, like you were working a full time job, right? Like how much how much time per day did you spend working on it and stuff like that? So back then I was pretty much a panther, and I like schedules. So my my basically my you know routine every day was I go to my job right till you know five six o'clock, then I go to the gym for like two hours, and then from eight to like you know whenever the cafe closed, I would would write and play poker and eat dinner at the same time. It's kind of like my thing because when you first start writing, you don't have the stamina, the, the mental stamina to sit in one place and just write for hours on end. So I was trying to do a couple things at once to keep my ass in a chair. The problem with that is your, your tension's always all over the place. So, so all that meant was I ended up having really, really bad plotting and grammar, and I lost a whole bunch of money playing online poker. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you know, I, I got that rough draft done, and over time, I, my, my, I was able to train myself to write and sit and focus on writing for long periods of time. So eventually, the poker fell aside. By the way, it's a really bad way to train yourself. Don't ever, ever do that. <laughs> so I mean, so what would you recommend instead then? Just the same thing without the poker, or? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know how people do it now. I mean, for a long time, like, that, that was my weekday routine. And then for my weekends, I would basically be one of those dudes who, like, went to, you know, different cafes every, you know, every weekend I'd pick a different cafe. I'd go to the front four or five hours, and I'd write. And, you know, I, I'd abuse the bottomless cup of coffee policy, and I'd be that, that creepy dude in the corner who's just, like, banging away at a laptop for, for hours on end. Uh, I, I think... These days, if some somebody, you know, a new writer would ask me that question, I would probably tell them, hey, you know, write in set spurts, take many breaks, but when you do write, really focus on writing, and when you're not writing, when you're taking that break, really don't think about writing and do something else for a while, and eventually you'll, you'll naturally have a have a rhythm to to um to when you sit down and you know and get words on on the screen. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this first novel comes out from Angry Robot. What was the what was that experience like, and what sort of responses did you get to the book? I mean, it's kind of like losing your virginity, you know, but but kind of better because honestly, losing your virginity is 
over. It's it's okay, but like getting your first book out, seeing it on the bookshelf. Um, I actually had a pretty big release party, so at the time I still had a pretty decent job. I was still working a job, so I'm like, look, I'll never debut ever again. And you know, a debut actually means something to me. So my brother surprised me. He flew in from LA to surprise me. I r- rented out a rooftop lounge in downtown Chicago. I think I catered a bunch of sushi, and I basically blew my blew like half my advance on the party. <laughs> but you know what? I had 250 people come, and it was fantastic. And then, how about responses to the book? What sort of like reviews or reader reactions did you get? Uh, you know what? I. I by the time the book came out, you know, Angry Robot is a mid-sized publisher, I was confident that it was going to do decent. I thought it was a fun small book. And, you know, I just wanted to get that first book out. And to be honest, uh, the response has been, like, really overwhelming. It did really well the first couple of weeks, and it continued to grow even now. I, I'm on book tour right now for Time Salvager, and every bookstore I, I stop by, they, they keep telling me, your book is a very regular seller. It's um, it's big, it's yellow, it's it's yellow, it's easy to sell, and you know a lot of people like it. So I'm hoping that it's one of those books that, you know, five, ten years from now, it'll still be on bookshelves. So that that's the secret? Big yellow books is the, the way you know to succeed? With I'm, a... I'm not going to lie. Okay, one... Everybody, every writer, when they think about their first book or when they see, you know, the, the cover art, we dream about art. We dream about having like a, just this beautiful, you know, artistic painting or, or, or scene as, as, as a, for a book cover. And when I first saw Liza Tao, I was like, oh, that's really interesting, but it's not art. But if I, you know, walk 20 feet away from the book and look at it, I can see it. If I put that book on a bookshelf, Filled with beautiful books, you know, with that have like art, it it stands out. So, the point of a book cover is to attract the eye and sell you books, and it does a fantastic job. I think uh, Angry Robot just hit it out of the park when it came to the cover design. <laughs> That's awesome. So, uh, okay, so I know you wrote two sequels to The Lives of Tao, and then you mentioned you wrote Time Salvager. What was the order in which you wrote those books, or in which they were released? Okay, so let's see. Life of Tao came out early May 2013. Uh, Angry Robot pushed the deaths of Tao from 2014 to November 2013. But, so after Death of Tao came out, actually, I wrote Time Salvager before Rebirth of Tao. Rebirth of Tao came out April 2015, and Time Salvager came out July 7th, 2015. So, Rebirth of Tao is my last book that I wrote. Okay, well, so tell us about the inception of uh, Time Salvager. How'd that idea come about? Okay, so Time Salvager is one of, like, I usually don't like talking about, like, what inspired you to write this book, but Time Salvager is one of those few that I really enjoy the story. So I read an article about a South African photojournalist named Kevin Carter. Uh, so he was, in, he was taking pictures, or he's a photojournalist in, uh, in Sudan covering the famine there. And he took a really iconic picture of this kid crawling towards an aid station, and there's a vulture hopping behind him, like waiting for him to die. You know, and he took the picture. Kevin thought that it wasn't his job to interfere, so he left the kid. He won a Pulitzer for that picture, and then he committed suicide 11 months later. I know that that story kind of like really stuck with me, and. Um, a few weeks later, I was I had a dream that I was a time traveler 
going to the Titanic. I'll, no, to steal the Hope Diamond because that's what you do when you're in the Titanic. <laughs> you steal the Hope Diamond. And I didn't know where the diamond was, so I spent you know most of the dream befriending the crew and the passengers trying to find a diamond, knowing full well that all these people were going to die. But it wasn't my job to interfere. My job was to get the Hope Diamond. So right when the ship started sinking, that's when I hopped back. I jumped. That's when I woke up. And I actually don't know if I actually got the Hope Diamond, but when I woke up, I was thinking to myself, you know, that's this is a really good way to use time travel. It's you know, the the number one rule for time travel should be you don't change the present if you change you know if you change the timeline. But if you jump to moments before disaster, you can salvage. You you can basically cover your tracks. And and the problem with this job though is you experience the last terrible moments of all the victims, and you can't do anything about it. Time Salvager is a time travel book, but really, it's also about you know PTSD and, and the effects of, of of you know depression and, and leaving and like knowing that you're leaving people to die and how how does that affect you over time? Yeah, yeah. Well, say a bit more about specifically about the the setting you came up with because it's uh, you have this character James Griffin Mars and it's set hundreds of years in the future. Tell us about that kind of stuff. Well, so I'm a I'm a high concept guy, so you know, I came up with the idea of of Time Salvager and, and these Kron men and how they go back in time to, to farm resources from the past. And then from that, I moved to my characters who, you know, James James is one of these Kron men and how does doing that job affect his, his psyche and, you know, how he, how does he deal with it? In his case, he, you know, he lost his sister a few years earlier. He drinks a lot. He's kind of suicidal. He's, you know, kind of a little bit, a little bit, he's losing it. And then I think about, you know, what, what is his foil? What is his salvation? Who are the characters involved? And in that case, I actually created Grace Priestley first, the mother of time. And then I created Elise Kim. And then, like, once I get the characters, that's when I start world building is, okay, so we, so we have this technology. We have these time travelers to go back in time to, to farm for resources. Why do they need to do that? What, what is the situation, you know, in this universe that requires them to, you know, find these resources. Well, obviously, it's a resource-scarce, you know, environment. So, what has happened? And from there, I slowly start, you know, creating this backstory about how, you know, humanity has colonized the solar system, and we've had a moment of prosperity, but we lost it, and we lost it because of, you know, of war, of, of environmental, of environmental catastrophes, of, you know, of squandering resources, of out-of-control capitalism. So, it's all these things I slowly add as as I kind of move, uh, spread the world building out. Right, right. So in this book, you have hundreds of years of future history, and often when James jumps back in time, it's he's jumping back to a time period that's the future from our point of view. How much of that future did you work out in advance, and how much of it did you develop after you started actually composing the text of the book? Um... I think most of it I worked out in advance. Uh, I wanted to use that time, those time traveling scenes, as a way of storytelling about filling in the background of that world without doing too much telling. So this is my way of showing you, like, okay, so this is what happened. And if you really take a step back and you know, look at the story from like a you know, ten thousand feet up view, you can actually, you know, chronologically figure out how the wars happened, what happened within the universe, you know, like this. They were prospering. This war happened. This war caused this to happen. This, you know, caused these people to do this. So you can actually map everything out. And it, a lot of it, obviously, the most of it was planned out in advance. 
Hmm. Well, say a bit more about like some of the because th- you have some pretty cool things. You have the AI wars and the gas wars and the Publikai age. Just say a bit about what some of these future developments are in your book. So, like, so the AI wars, you know, we, we've always talked about how, how AI is having these uprisings and how they take over humanity, with the whole Skynet, Terminator thing. And I wanted to show that a little bit, but not so much to talk about that war, but the after effects of that war, where, you know, because we, we should have a good, you know, good AI in the future. However, why don't we? And part of that is because we had an AI war. And from that, you know, humanity has, had recovered to an extent, but they strictly limit, you know, artificial intelligence because of that. But on top of that, they also create these different societies that, you know, that were left over, you know, that basically they were the, the refugees from these wars and how they had kind of splintered from most of humanity where, um, like the Kubakai age is about these people who broke off from the rest of society and they had these very strict, strictly controlled, you know, these environments or these you know, cities, these floating cities and, and generation ships that basically can read your mind so that that they want you to be controlled because they they were a, a reflex of, of previous wars. You know, and the gas wars and, and you know, some of those were just were, were basically how capitalism, how you know, the, these large conglomerate companies are fighting over scarce resources out of the solar system. Um, there's another war called the the core war where the planets from Mars and in were fighting all the outer rim planets over resources and and control of the solar system. So, you know, it, there's a there's a very distinct storyline that that happens that kind of maps out what happened to humanity in that time frame. Right, right. And you mentioned the character Dr. Grace Priestley, who was like one of my favorite characters in the book. Say a bit more about her. I think she's everybody's favorite character. Actually, mm-hmm. I love it. But um, there, she was probably like the very first character in the story, right after James. And I just really wanted to show how foreign her society could be, yet how how human she is. I mean, she's basically she's a very strong human. She's a genius, and she really likes sex, and she's old. And she's in control, and she's strong, but but she's also very vulnerable in in, in many ways. So there's, I don't know, she's just a, a really fun character to write. Um, when she, I came up with her pretty organically, and I, I knew I wanted her to be the leader of a very high technology advanced, technologically advanced civilization. But then I wanted her to show some very base instincts as well. Yeah. Well, and she also invented the the laws of time travel in this uh, world. Tell us about that. So, so Grace initially invented the the no, t- time travel to kind of aid her civilization. Now, she is the leader of the technology isolationists. They're a very advanced, you know, splinter group of humanity, but they don't have a lot of resources. So, and and they're fighting against the Neptune divinities, which is basically like religious fanatics who were incredibly uh, large, but didn't have a lot of technology, and they were being overwhelmed. So their their lack of resources, no matter how advanced they were, were, were fully killing them. So she was admitting time travel to help to farm these resources, to help her, the TIs, against the war. However, she also recognized being, you know, being a genius, she recognized that time travel is an extremely dangerous tool. So she wanted to create these time laws in order to, like, you know, lay down some ground rules on what you can and can't do. 
Right. And so, I mean, so what are the dangers of time travel exactly? I mean, if someone goes into the past and they change something major in your view of time travel, what's going to happen? I mean, so I mean, so uh, that, that was one of the like the big things that uh, you know, one of the first rules I had when I wrote this book is I I wanted it to be very clear that time traveling is not here to change the future or change the present, you know. And then one example I always use is um, like the whole Hitler thing, where like you know. You can use time, well, what, what, what does everybody say when they, when they talk about time travel? What do, you, what do you do with time traveling? You either, A, kill Hitler, you know, prevent Yoko Ono from, like, picking up the Beatles, <laughs> make a lot of money. You know, that's, like, that's stuff people do. You know, how, how, do, how, do I win the, how do I bet on the World Series? And, and the thing about it is, you know, is let's, let's say you do kill Hitler. Let's say we go, you know, some time travel, some time, somebody invents time travel, goes back and, and offs, like, young Adolf, like, coming out of water called Coloring Class. Now, for you know, and most likely, the Third Reich is still going to happen. You know, Hitler isn't the only reason the Third Reich happened. So there's a good chance that even though you kill Hitler, we're still going to get the Nazi party. And for all we know, the, the new Fuhrer or the leader of the party, you know, read a little Napoleonic history. Maybe he looked at the map of, of Europe and Russia and, and, and goes, you know, that's a lot of land to cover. I don't think it's a good idea for us to head east. Let's just put our attention on, you know, on Europe and, and, and the UK. So, and before you know it, we are 70 years into the thousand-year Reich. So there's a lot of dangers involved with changing the timeline. So in Time Salvager, there's an agency called Chronicom. Their job is to farm these resources, but they're one of their main jobs also is to prevent the timeline from being changed. So if they ever have one of their guys go back in time and make a mistake or somehow intentionally uh, cause what they call a ripple, they actually send guys to course correct the error so that you know the timeline basically stays the same. Right, because they would all cease to exist, right? If uh, if a big enough change were allowed to uh, perpetuate itself through the timeline. Yeah, you- I mean, there's, there's, there's a way I deal with the timeline where they can see the ripple happening. So if somebody makes a change you know, early on in the past, these guys in the future who are always monitoring this can see the ripple that's occurring. And that ripple is basically what's slowly changing the timeline. So they can actually act ahead and, of course, correct. Yeah, yeah. And so they have these guys called auditors whose job is to, to clean up messes made by the Kronmen. And, uh, and all these guys have just amazing technology at their disposal. So tell us about the Exos, uh, which are, are really, really cool. Um, they're sort of these kind of bracelets that you wear, I guess. I mean, how did you come up with the, the whole idea for the Exos and the bands? I don't I mean, I just, I was trying to, I think, I was trying to think of like how, how would these guys be able to go back in time and utilize certain powers without being so high tech. And that's just kind of what I came up with. Um, I thought I wanted to give them limitations on what they can do, yet I wanted to make the technology adaptable enough so that when they go back in time, they can still utilize it without, you know, looking like they're like Terminator 2 for the future. So, and I also wanted to show that the, even though humanity is slowly suffocating in the future, they're still able to invent, you know, in- incredible things. So it's kind of like a dichotomy of like, um, on one hand, there's people starving, and you know they they are they're savage, they're wastelanders and tribes out in the radioactive lands, and then there's still really really advanced technology because at the end of the day, if you think about even even in modern society, we're always advancing military tech, even while like bad things are happening all around us. Even though you know we could be spending that money, 
I don't know, curing cancer or like feeding the poor, but we're always spending a lot of money advancing our military technology. And that's kind of true in the future as well. Right. Yeah. And so, the, so these exos, they can, they have kind of a force field that makes them more or less invulnerable and they have kind of energy whips slash energy spears and they can also alter their appearance uh, in pretty much any way that they want. Uh, so they have this enormous power. So how did you balance that? Like, what kind of limitation did did you struggle at all with? What sort of limitations to put on those powers, or what was your approach to that? So here's what happens: is these these cron men and auditors, they all wear several like several bands. You know, the the one that lets them change their appearance is called a paint band, or and what that is, they actually have to like you know very methodically record the thing they're copying. Like, and it takes and they can't record it on the fly. They actually have to really like download the entire you know every nuance of whatever they're, they're painting over before they can use it. Now, there's, there's a band that allows them to protect them from radiation. There's a band that allows them to communicate in different languages. Um, there's a band that the monitors, that the regular soldiers use that are basically you know, firing like, like laser beams. And then the actual exobands are the ones that the auditors and the chronomen use. And, the, and if, you, if you look at how they're, how they're described, um, like auditors and cronmen use different kinds of bands. So auditor bands are much more powerful than cronmen bands, but they're also a lot more inefficient. Cronmen bands, you know, these guys are can can go back in time. They can survive for for days or weeks in history as they do their jobs. And these bands are a lot more powerful, more energy efficient than the auditor bands. Um, there are other bands like the ones that um. The, the, the corporations use who were made to fight in space. So instead of creating, you know, being able to create half a dozen coils, they create one much more powerful coil. But in doing so, it affects the way they you know they have to anchor themselves when they fight sometimes. So there's a lot of different kinds of combat bands, and they all have weaknesses and strengths, and you know, are used for different things. Um, and so you mentioned like that you have that these different kinds of weapons, uh, you know, have different strengths and weaknesses when they fight each other. And there are just some just like out of control fight scenes uh, in this book. Uh, tell us about your approach to writing those. I mean, did you uh, do you act them out, or do you like sketch them out, or do you like perform them with action figures, or I don't know. What is, what is your approach to the to those fight scenes? You know, I used to act them out. I think that in the Lies of Tao, I think that the very the first iterations of the Lies of Tao, I could reenact every single fight scene. I mean, I was, I, mean, I come from a martial arts background, and I was very proud of the fact that, hey, look, this scene can actually happen. And, and then I realized that, you know what, this scene can actually happen, but it reads kind of boring. <laughs> because, you know, that's, you know, being authentic in your fight scene isn't as important as, you know, what the fight scene's there for. Now, a fight scene is a conversation with fists. A fight scene is, is about tension, climax, and the result. So, that's kind of my philosophy of fight scenes. I don't reenact them out. I don't act, act them out anymore. Um, I try to keep them entertaining, interesting, and a little different each time. I hope I succeed. I don't know if I do. But um, with Time Salvager, I, I just hope I, I'm showing something a little bit different that uh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. I guess I'm wondering, do you do you work out what's going to happen in the fight ahead of time, or do you just write your way through it? I write my way through it. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> There's no science to my stink there. <laughs> just kind of muck through it. And then, you know, after I get the scene out, I'll probably take a day off and I'll read it and decide that if it's too much, too little, does it make any sense? And if it, you know, if it doesn't, I, you know, on any of those levels, I, I course correct. Right, right. And so I heard you say that you, you sort of wrote, I think, the first couple of chapters of this and then kind of figured out what the story was going to be. Um, how did you find the, what was the process of sort of writing, you know, the beginning of the book? So, I mean, so once I used to be a complete pantser and all of those guys, I would just write, you know, write without an outline. And then as, and as I, over time, I, you know, I became more hooked on, like really staying with an outline. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to do a hybrid form of writing where, you know, I'll write the first probably you know, three to six chapters, just kind of getting the feel for the character, getting the feel for the world, kind of, you know, get, getting, hearing the, the, the narrative in, in, in my head. And then once I get that down, then I start outlining. And then I'll write a very thorough outline. The problem with almost every single one of my outlines is they jump the shark at like certain points. You know, always at the 70% mark, I just completely jump the rails. Um, many times between like 30 to 40%, I, you know, I kind of like jump the rails too. So what I'm doing now is I only outline a third at a time. So I, I would pants the first couple chapters, then I would go back and revise, I get the feel of everything. Then I write a very thorough outline up to a third, and then I write it out, and then I, then I re-outline, do some course correction, then I then I write it out again, and so on, so on, so on. Right, because because I think I heard you say that you you had written the first couple chapters of the book, and you were just you didn't know where it was going to go, and you were considering giving up writing or something. Like t talk about that period of the of the book. Oh, no, no, no. So what happened was um, Time Salvage are sold off a partial. A partial is uh, not a full manuscript. And at the time, I had a very clear vision of, you know, the setting, but I didn't know how to, I wasn't sure how to end the story. And it's a weird thing because when you sell off a full manuscript, you know, the editor who buys it, you, you know they like or at least you know, pretty much like what they see. There's a weird pressure involved with selling off a partial because you want to give them a good book, but they don't know how you're going to end it, and many times the author doesn't know either. So it was just a really weird stress attached to that. I've never had to deal with that before until I sold the partial, where you, you know writers were already kind of neurotic people anyway, this is just additional stress that I wasn't prepared for. So I think at one point when the contract first came in, I was like, oh, you know, if I, if I don't sign it, then I'll have to finish the book. <laughs> Which is a terrible, terrible career decision to make. <laughs> so always finish your book. <laughs> so, so you initially conceived this as a standalone book and then it kind of grew into more than that? Right. So... Here's the thing is, you know, after I mapped out the first book, I realized that, look, there's, this is a big problem that requires big solutions. And it just didn't make sense for me to try to solve everything in one book. It was impossible to solve everything in one book. Uh, so that's, that's when I, you know, to kind of took a step back, reimagined everything, you know, the characters and everything that was going on and realized that this is 
more the story has I wouldn't call it a space opera because it's not actually in space, but it's definitely more of, of a more epic in scope. And that's when I remapped it out to a, to a three books series. Right, and you've already finished the second book, right? Yes. The second book is coming out early May 2016. I believe the tentative date is May 7th, but I don't think that's locked in yet. And then what's the status of the third book? Have you started writing that yet, or what's how's that going? Uh... I am taking a break. So right now, uh, Time Salvager is my fourth published book, and Time Salvager 2 is my fifth book, no, the fifth book that I, I, I wrote. And that's two trilogies that I, I've worked on in the span of, you know, two, three years. So I decided to take the summer off, and I'm writing two partials that are standalones. And then I think in a few months, I'll sit with my agent and my editor, and we'll see where we're at with the third book. But right now, I'm reveling and not thinking about trilogies right now. Hmm. Is there anything you can say about those partials you're working on? Um, right now, their, their titles are The Recovered and A Pet Named Charles. Uh, and A Pet Named Charles is an idea I, I can see when I was doing Kilimanjaro back in February. And it's about my dog, except it's not about my dog. <laughs> Is it YA? No, it's not a YA. It's actually it's about eugenics. <laughs> no, no, not, about, not, not a YA. <laughs> that sounds good. Actually, speaking of titles, I, I, I saw in a couple of interviews you said that Time Salvager was not, not definitely going to be the, uh, the title of this book until it came out. I mean, what other titles were you considering? Were yeah, and what was the the factors that went into titling this book? Oh, I, you know, Time Salvager was the original name I had for this from the get go. Uh, my editor and I at uh, my editor at Tor, we played around with some other options, and at the end of the day, we we settled back on Time Salvager. Um, we're about to settle on the title of the second book, and it's probably going to be Time Siege. Hmm. So, titles are hard, man. <laughs> uh, when 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 uh when the lives of when when uh, Angry Robot first bought the lives of Tao, my editor there was like, you know, I could see the lives of Tao as a really good name for the series, but not for a book. So we spent three months just going back and forth, like you know, going through all these, picking all these names, and I, I had a list of like 150 like really terrible names. <laughs> At the very end, he, and he sends me an email, and he's like get the title for the book for you. What do you think about The Lies of Tao? And I'm like, all right, good. <laughs> okay, and so I, I heard that this this book was uh, optioned for film uh, and that Michael Bay is attached. Can you say anything about that? Uh, that's a no comment. I'm not, that's all I can say about that. Okay, because I think I saw you announced it on your blog and then you deleted the post later on. Is that right? Yeah, that's a no comment. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to just edit that out? I mean, I could, you could, you could, well, no comment's a, a completely uh, legitimate answer. <laughs> okay. Um, Do you have, have there, has there been any film or TV interest in any of your other books? So, uh, a screenwriter that has, you know, has done movies in Hollywood is interested in The Lives of Tao, and currently we have a 30 minute pilot for it. So, 
I'm not sure where we're at, but I've read the pilot and it's really damn good. And can you say, I mean, is it very similar to the book or have, is it, have they like tweaked it in some major ways or? It's, he's pretty, he's pretty, I think he was, I would would say he's he's pretty accurate. I mean, he's really kept the spirit of the book. Um, Some of the scenes were, were moved around. He has, you know, kind of accelerated, you know, some of the conflict, which, which is great. So, but um, I think overall, definitely the spirit of, of the story is there. And that's really what's the most important. Huh. Yeah, cool. I saw actually this, this book, it's uh, dedicated, the Time Salvager is dedicated to your grandparents. And there's this uh, acknowledgments page at the beginning about them. Could you just talk about why you included that in the book? I, I, so, as I, I was writing Time Salvager, it, uh, it kind of got me thinking about like how I grew up, you know, and like I came to the U.S. when I was five years old. And, you know, I came because my father was studying, you know, English at the time at University of Nebraska. My, my grandparents, you know, raised me. And then I was, I, it just kind of occurred to me, like, you know, there were a hundred small decisions that could have been made that would have kept me there in Taiwan. Uh, and, you know, life would have been great in Taiwan, I'm sure. But there were so many things that could have been done that could have happened in, in my, you know, really brief history, in my brief past that could have steered me away from writing. You know, I love what I do. This is what I was meant to do. I am a single-purpose machine. All I am here to do on this world is to write books. And it might have not happened just if my, you know, grandparents decided that I should stay in Taiwan or my dad decided that he didn't want to, you know, study English in the States or, you know, my mom decided not to go with him to, to Nebraska. So there's all these small things that could have happened that would have just changed everything for me. And I just kind of, you know, writing Time Salvagers kind of got me thinking about all these things and really how, how appreciative I am of all the sacrifices they all made so that I am sitting here right now, you know, with my fourth book published. <laughs> I heard you say that your dad uh, will will still uh, call you sometimes and say, like, hey, I have a lead on a job at a bank if you want to <laughs> if you want to change jobs. Yeah, you know, my my dad is my biggest fan. He's my biggest fan. But he also knows how tough being a writer is and, you know, how hard it is to, to make a living in the industry. So so up until January, I, I would say, no, not January, I'd say up until, like, probably April, he would, you know, sometimes, like, email me, like, hey, you know, I got you an interview at Chase Bank, son, or, you know, <laughs> or he'd be, like, say, you know, I, I know somebody who is a headhunter who may help you find a job. So it it took both my parents quite a while to accept that this is my full-time job and I'm not going back to cubicle ever, ever again. I am officially unemployable from this point on <laughs> by any major corporation or – so this is it. This is, this is my end game. Right, because I also heard you say it was just, it was something similar with your wife, right, where she gave you sort of two years to, to prove that you could make a living at this? Yeah, so what happened was, I know I worked, I was working at a large bank for a long time, and, and, and common practical advice, you know, for authors is you, you know, if you can handle a day job and write books at the same time, that's what you do. You, you work that day job until you can't anymore. You work that day job until you're just so damn busy that something's gotta give. That's when you go full time. Um, in my case, January 2014, I got laid off. And it was kind of expected, but, you know, Personally, I thought I had another year left to kind of like do both, but 
we were ready for it. And by then, I was already focusing on writing more than I was on, you know, on day jobbing, I guess. So my wife, you know, we talked about it, and it was actually, and she agreed. She goes, look, it's a big pay cut for the family. So I, we will sacrifice, and you have two years to make something of yourself. And if you can't, then apply, start applying for jobs. And I think that was, you know, that two years is, you know, that's, that was my window. So um, I'm very appreciative of her support, and that's when I got cracking on writing books. And then did, how, how close did you cut it in the two years? Like, did you achieve your goal, like, in a year and a half or, like, uh, 20 months or, or what was it? I mean, we, we didn't have, like, exact metrics, you know? She wasn't like, here's your graph of, you know, <laughs> once, you, once you hit the blue line, you, are, you, have, you have passed and leveled up. So, <laughs> we just, it was kind of like an arbitrary thing where, like, you know, work hard, let's see what we can get at, and if we're still struggling after X amount of time, go find a job. And I think she officially allowed me to pass and level up back in May of this year. So I am, for better or worse, I am full-time writing now, yeah. forever. <laughs> uh, that's great. Yeah, no, I mean, I, as I said, I, I really enjoy Time Salvager, so I'm glad that you're writing full-time because uh, I'm Thank looking you. forward to seeing more books like this. And so, yeah, so I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Wesley Chu, and this new book is called Time Salvager. It's a blast. I really recommend it. And so, Wes, thank you so much for joining us. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Wesley Chu for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Ricky Granger in the U.S. and Tony Nick One in the U.K. And, of course, a special thank you to Slater Davidson, Suzanne K. Moses, and Bob J. 50,000, who all just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. I'd also like to thank Sebastian Henselt and Damian Dimmick, who both increased their pledge amounts this week. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd prefer to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I'd like to thank Rory Carroll and Evangelina Crozer, who just became PayPal patrons number 117 and 118. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarrkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.